Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. This week we are, I guess, the white flag. Next week is the checkered flag. Lesson 11 out of 12. And we are continuing in our study of the Holy Spirit in regards to the corporate nature of the church and His work within us as a body. And last week we discussed how the Holy Spirit works in regards to worship, and we observed the necessity of worshiping in spirit and truth. And worship is something that we give to God. It is not an experience that we simply receive only. It is a giving. In the Greek word proskuneo, meaning advancing forward to a kiss. Uh, so that pros, advancing forward, and then the kineo is the to kiss verb. So worship is usually known publicly, and this is in general when someone has fallen to their knees, they touch the ground with one's face and a high form of worship out of respect or of some reason of begging or supplication towards a superior being. And our anchor text last week was John chapter 4. And we talked about how in verses 23 and 24 it says, But an hour is coming, Christ says, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So when we gather as believers, we are giving to God our minds, our hearts, and our strength to serve Him with our attention and reverence. That is the Spirit. However, spirited worship is not in itself true worship unless it is based on the truth. Sound doctrine derived from the Word of God is the only foundation for true worship, both individually and corporately. Worship individually, such as prayer, we talked about in your prayer closet or in your uh, secluded place at home, praying, fasting, giving of our resources monetarily, as the Bible says, your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing kind of thing. We do this in privacy, worshiping the Lord with our resources our time in volunteering, all of these things are glorifying to God as worship individually. Worship in a corporate setting, such as we read in Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 21, must also be done in humility and in the truth. Verse 18 through 21 says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So there's the giving of oneself in humility in worship, 
And there's the foundation for that service, which is the reverence of Christ alone. And he is known through the truth of the scriptures alone. Ephesians 4, 15, and 16 states, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, and that goes back to the using of your spiritual gifts individually for the benefit of the body, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So all that we do, we must do in in humility and in love. And as we discuss worship amongst one another in the body of Christ and how the Spirit of God brings us to unity in the truth, this week we will learn that the mission of the body is not only to glorify God and build up one another within the church, and that could even be within these walls or down the hall or outside this place, within the church, but we are also called and commanded to go into all the world. So it's one thing to put our entire being, our spirit, into an act of service. We know many religions worldwide do this. Even many secular organizations do. I looked up a couple of humanist websites that have many opportunities to serve in humanitarian areas of the world, needs of the world. Nearly all of these Websites have an about us page or why they exist, why the organization exists. The mission statement that everyone has is the succinct reason that they do what they do. It is what they are moving toward and giving of themselves to see come to pass. You can read a mission statement and realize very quickly what or who is being raised up and honored by all the money donated and all the hours of volunteer hours that are being poured out. Organizations of movements describe themselves as promoting causes and inspiring people towards some certain end. Now, while all of this seems noble and full of high moral principle, it's always important to ask, what is being glorified and raised up? Humanitarian work, such as organizing food supplies and water, is important. If you've ever not had food and water, you know how important that is and how much of a blessing it is to receive those things. Or providing care for those sick, those without parents. I know Janelle, I think a lot of Janelle and her selfless giving towards uh, orphans in the African regions. We are told in Matthew 10.42 that there is value in giving even a cup of cold water to drink. Jesus told his disciples to go out in various ways to assist others with health needs, such as the leper, the sick physically, the demon-possessed, and even the dead. And that was the original apostleship, those 13. These acts of humanitarian service were to be done for no charge, He said, don't take their silver, don't take their gold. If they would have, these apostles would have been very rich men. They could have hired bodyguards and things of that nature. 
They may not have all met the ends that they all met, 12 out of the 13 being martyred for Christ. But they didn't take anything for their good deeds as a testimony to what? To the good-hearted nature of mankind, who's really good deep down. No, Jesus instructed his disciples, he instructed his disciples that they must first preach the truth of Christ, then the help was administered. Jesus referred to those that would be helped as lost sheep. Not sick sheep, not demon-possessed sheep or uneducated sheep. His main purpose for sending the twelve was that the lost sheep would be found. And that is the good news of Jesus Christ that would reach down into the pit and save the sheep from the helpless, hopeless situation. The physical needs are important. If they weren't, Scripture wouldn't mention it. It wouldn't mention the cup of cold water or assisting those in need or those who are in prison. The spiritual is the ultimate priority because the spiritual is eternal. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning is the mission of the church. So let us pray together that the Lord would give us clarity in this, in this area. Dear Heavenly Father, as we seek to understand more, better of who you are and what you desire of us, we pray that you would make clear to us what you would like us to do, what you have commanded us to do. And we pray, Lord, for ability to do this great mission that you have entrusted to us. And Lord, we pray for those who are not with us this morning due to illness or um, whatever the reason. We pray that you would bring them again back with us next week, that we can fellowship. We also pray, Lord, for our own missionaries from our church, and we pray for them each week. And Lord, you know them better than we do. We pray that you would give them Ability to accomplish what you desire. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In your handout, the opening words, words you probably have not seen before, but mitere, a Latin verb, which means to send. It's an action of sending. If you admit entry, you allow someone through action to come to a certain place, if you emit something like light from a flashlight, it is an action of sending out rays of light. Missio, we could call it a um, sibling usage in the Latin, missio is a noun, it's not a verb, it is a sending, or we could call it the sent ones. Those that are on a mission. And a mission is an important, so it's a thing, it's a noun, an important assignment carried out for political reasons, religious, commercial purposes. Then also, the second definition in the dictionary, the vocation or calling of a religious organization, especially a Christian one, to go out into the world and spread its faith. So if you were to write a mission statement for yourself, what kind of a mission statement would you write? I exist for the purpose of 
and you could examine your life and see what is it that I'm existing for at this very moment. We have a mission statement for our church in the About Us section, just like many churches do. In Matthew 28, 16 through 20, we find a reference to the great mission or the great charge that Christ gave to his church. This is an order, a command that ones be sent. Notice that before these were sent, these apostles, the original sent ones, which is what apostle means, is to send out away from wherever they were currently. That's what the word translates to in the Greek. Even though they trusted Christ, the Bible says that some were doubting, even at the moment before Christ sent them out, before the Holy Spirit came upon them at Pentecost, which we learned about in lesson four of this study. But some of them even had doubts, and Christ gave them the command and reassured them. He knew they had doubts and fears of going out. You may also. Verse 16 says, But the eleven disciples, this is before Matthias was added as the twelfth, proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, Christ, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, reassurance here, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And I set out in your handout A, B, C, and D of what he commanded of them. Number one, that they go. You can't be sent out if you stay where you currently are. Second thing was to make disciples of all nations. And that's a training. Train them. Once you have trained them, baptized them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And finally, teach them, continue in the things that you've been taught, as Scripture tells us, to observe all that Jesus taught. The body of Christ is not dormant. Once we become this living organism, we don't lay on the gurney with feeding tubes and things of that nature. We are sent. We are empowered. There is activity. Moreover, there is no other way for the body of Christ to exist other than to obey the head, Jesus Christ. If your brain says to your right hand, raise, it will raise. If your brain tells your heart to beat at a certain pace for proper organ supply, which thankfully we don't have to do, because as absent-minded as I am, that would be a problem. But I'm grateful that the Lord has taken care of that for us. And also the brain, when we laugh, we have these endorphins and this serotonin that is released for the goodness of the body, which scientific studies have proven. So in Proverbs, where it says, a merry heart does good like a medicine, of course scripture is correct in that. But if the head 
tells the body to do something and the body doesn't do it, there is a disconnect. There's some kind of malfunction there. So it would follow logically that if a body of believers doesn't take seriously or flatly denies the command of Christ to go out into the world and to make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and to teach them to observe all that Christ taught, there's some kind of dysfunction there. There's a disconnect within that body. A gathering of believers in a local church body is given a command to make disciples of all nations. And then in your handout, I have this listed if you'd like to follow along with the scripture passages in Mark 16, 14 through 16. It says, after, this is a, another account of what we've already read. After he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. So there's that command to go into all the world. Luke 24, 46 through 49, he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem, which was the ground zero on the day of Pentecost. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Remember, they stayed in Jerusalem for ten days and then the Holy Spirit of promise came upon them. Then they went. So this promise, as we learned in lesson four, this empowering of the Holy Spirit was necessary for these early apostles to affirm the message of the gospel to the world through the various signs and wonders until the revelation of God's word was written for us and the first century church and every century afterwards until this time that would be circulated and the Holy Spirit is still necessary to make fruitful any furtherance of the gospel message today. In Acts 1.8, Jesus tells his disciples, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses, both in Jerusalem, ground zero, as we talked about, the first place where the Holy Spirit came upon them. In all Judea, the 3,000 were added and went out and and preached Christ. And then Samaria, where the gospel wasn't supposed to go in the original apostles' minds, and even to the remotest parts of the world, like the Gentiles, like Cornelius and his house. That last phrase pertains to us, though. We are the witnesses to the uttermost part of the earth. We're pretty much on the other side of the world from the Israeli region, There are remote areas of the world, indeed, even further than us, either in the north or south, in Siberia, places no one thinks about. The word witnesses that we read about in the last two sections there, or the last two scripture passages, comes from the Greek word martyrero, which is the word that we have derived from martyr. 
It simply means one who bears a testimony or affirms some truth or belief or has experienced something in a primary way. Usually the word martyr in our time of using it in this present age describes one who gives their life for the belief of which they testify. In John 20, 21, we have another account of this commission. Jesus says again to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. So the church is still and always will be dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit to see success in any efforts to proclaim the good news to the world. And what makes the world such a difficult place to share this good news? Why can't we just go up to someone on the street corner, explain the dire state that they are in, in sin? They become a believer. They come to church with you from that point forward. You're like, well, it's not easy to persuade people. I agree with that. That's why people make propaganda videos and things during wartime. Commercials are out there to persuade you. But this isn't simply a persuasion of cost-effectiveness or, you know, we've got the best product on the market to solve your problems. This is not a gimmick. The state of the world presently, it's ruled by the prince of the power of the air, who even now works in the sons of disobedience. John 16, 11 calls Satan the ruler of this world, the adversary of our souls, who in 1 Peter 5 seeks to devour the children of God. He understands that his reign is short. Revelation 12, 12 tells us that. He is urgently trying to dismantle and destroy the foundation of the church and all who are in Christ Jesus. And remember, we don't war against flesh and blood. Remember, we war against the spiritual. The world itself has a deep-seated hatred for the church because the world's ruler is Satan. Now, because believers are ambassadors for Christ, the world hates us too. The world kills Christians, as Jesus said they would do. But why? Well, because they hated Christ first. And we've talked about this idea earlier in our studies. Sinclair Ferguson, in his book of the Holy Spirit, writes, The New Testament places the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the world, ruled by Satan, in an antithetical, not a conciliatory relationship. The world cannot see or know the Spirit, spiritual things even. The Spirit convicts the world. The Spirit of the world and the Spirit of God stand over against each other. Abraham Kuyper, speaking of this and why we, in love, suffer this abuse of the world, he says, love suffers because the spirit of the world antagonizes the spirit of God. The former is unholy. The latter is holy. Not in the sense of mere opposition to the world's spirit, but because he is the absolute author of all holiness, being God himself. Whenever we individually are tempted by the world and inwardly animated by the Holy Spirit, there's a clash of conscience 
And I had talked about when we are reproved by the Spirit, His hand is heavy upon us. As soon as one member of a family breathes a worldly spirit, whether in a family gathering at your home or even within the church family, and another testifies against it in the spirit of holiness, saying, that's wrong, this is truth. It says there is trouble and strife in the family. These two oppose each other. They cannot be reconciled. Compromise is impossible. You know, the world's always telling us, compromise, appeasement. Let's all just get along. Ecumenism, right? Let's all just come together. But with the truth, there is no compromise in the respect of changing the truth to fit a cultural form. Either one, going back to Kuiper here, either one, the worldly spirit at last closes our hearts against the Holy Spirit, and then we are lost. Or after long conflict, the Holy Spirit vanquishes the world spirit. And that's the end of the Kuiper quote. Still, amidst the stark opposition, we are commanded to go. We must remember Christ promised and gave his Holy Spirit, our great helper, to urge us into, and he's not just urging us over the cliff and say good luck, he's urging us into and to be successful in proclaiming the gospel of his name. In his power, we confront the world in love and witness proclaiming that Jesus Christ saves the sinner. Now you may say, well, I, I once tried to witness to a co-worker, and now in the butt of all the religious jesting in the office, I'm ostracized from all the social gatherings. Maybe that's a good thing. I've been passed over for promotions, although I've got a spotless record. I've proven my cop- competency day in and day out. Some witnesses who have shared the gospel have been threatened physically and sued for sharing the gospel with someone who may have felt offended. While all that may be true, worse persecution, as we've discussed, occurred to the apostles. Paul writes, and you know Paul's end on this earth, right? Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, the the church, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. The world hates Christ so much that killing him was not enough. It must rage against his ambassadors, but still we are commanded to go, and to go rejoicing. So how practically do we share the gospel? How did Jesus witness to Cleopas and his wife Mary on the road to Emmaus? How did Peter witness to Cornelius and his household? How did Paul witness to Lydia? True, effective, spirit-filled witnessing raises up Christ. Sometimes when we 
think we're witnessing and we talk about the things that God has done for us to help us out of circumstances or he's worked in our hearts. We might spend a half an hour talking about this without the hearer ever hearing the things of Christ, his virgin conception, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. If we are to share the good news, it must be the good news about Christ, not only what good effects he has wrought in our hearts. When you want someone to see the light, you don't describe the effects of the light, you hold up a torch. We raise up Christ. The light of Christ shines through the mouths of his witnesses. How does someone who is spiritually blind see the light? Well, when we witness in love, our words will fall to the ground if not carried and applied by the Holy Spirit. In Acts 16, 14, when Paul witnessed to Lydia, he said, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said. How did the Lord go about by doing this? Well, in Ephesians 1.18, it says, Paul writes, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of this calling. An answer to this prayer takes the form in 2 Corinthians 4.6, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He is the one who shines the light in our hearts. John MacArthur writes, If Jesus himself ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit, members of his body must also rely on the Holy Spirit's power to witness. A good witness in a courtroom speaks only that which they know. Do you know him? If you do, do you know him well enough to share Christ with others? One can only share with others what they know themselves. When we had our baptism service up here, that was very well talked about. I think it was 17 individuals sharing their testimony. It was a common testimony. Sinners where you have to start. We're sinners. We have something to be saved from. Saved by the grace of God in the Lord Jesus. This common message should be able to be given by each and every child of God. It's that simple. We are his witnesses. So where do we go? Well, we, I think, of a missionary from the books I read in my younger days that my parents would buy for me about Hudson Taylor, and I remember these illustrations of a ship going across the sea to China. Others think of their next-door neighbors or their childhood friends. Many here at Faith Bible are witnesses on the campuses of certain colleges around our area. R.C. Sproul writes, Christians must participate in the ministry of the church, and every Christian must endeavor to be Christ to his neighbor. To be Christ to your neighbor is not to be your neighbor's Lord and Savior. Rather, it is to be Christ's representative to your neighbor. We are to represent the mercy 
and the ministry of Jesus to all who are around us. The answer then to where we witness is found in the conviction that God has placed on our hearts. You know the needs in your sphere of influence, and everywhere you go, the fields are white for harvest. In this age of social media, that influence can either be a great help or a great hindrance. Our witnesses, our witness can be hindered or even destroyed when we like or post or share information that is contrary to the gospel or leads minds into darkness. We also have a great opportunity to proclaim Christ through these forms of social media. Maybe even you came to Christ through these social ministries such as Grace to You, Desiring God, or Ligonier Ministries. If you have a smartphone and are connected with others, you have a media ministry or one available to you. Remember also that you are part of the body, and what you do reflects on the body. We don't speak on behalf of each other, but what we say does reflect upon one another as we are all members of one body. You say, well, I thought about witnessing, but I'm not eloquent. Neither am I, by the way. I stammer and forget what I want to say. Moses did too. The Lord helped him to speak to the Pharaoh of Egypt. Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm not deserving to go witness to people. They know what I've done. But after God purified his lips, he said, here am I. Send me. If you are filled with the Spirit of God and yielding in obedience, which brings that fullness, as we have discussed, to that which you are called to do in this life, whatever your spiritual gift is, God will bring the increase. Your loving actions for others speaks clearly and loudly, and your spiritual fruit is evident. Your love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and the rest all of this testifies of the work of Christ in you. And you'll be able to have a more impactful message to share with the world in that way. Now, as you share with someone something to think of, and this is your daily walk with the Lord, think about an incompetent mechanic. Would you trust the word of an incompetent mechanic who doesn't even know how to properly inflate a set of tires. So it says 35 PSI, you drive out of there with 70. Your tires are kind of bowing up in the middle. People think they're wagon wheels, you know, because they're so inflated. Would you trust that same mechanic to come and rebuild your blown engine? Well, no. Would you seek out the mechanic whose work was spoken of by the community? A good witness will be known throughout the community because their gracious speech, things that they share in their testimony verbally, matches their gracious walk with the Lord. They don't speak out of both sides of their mouth, as, as people say. 
They walk their talk. Now, that doesn't save anyone. The Holy Spirit does that. But it draws people. That person is a follower of Christ. And when the Holy Spirit convicts that person, whatever way that is, after they've heard the word of God, they know where to go to hear how or what must I do to be saved. Even if you don't feel like you're competent, remember, God does not call the faithful, as it's been said. He makes faithful the called. He loved us before we loved him. He called us before we called out to him. We are his workmanship. We speak his truth. We will see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven one day. Seeing others bow the knee to King Jesus while the day of salvation is yet at hand. We know that this offer of salvation It has a moment in time where it will cease. We don't know the day or the hour of his coming, but we know that right now, salvation is at hand. We can proclaim this truth now. Today is the day of salvation. The Council of Nicaea in the 4th century affirmed the role of the church as the one holy, universal, apostolic church. Now, the Catholic Church uses this in their creeds, and I'm talking about the Roman Catholic Church, to talk about the church being descended from the apostles. We know they're the foundation, the twelve. But apostolic means the sent ones, and the church is apostolic. We are the sent ones. We are all sent out into the world for the sake of his eternal kingdom, for the sake of Christ. Now, a quick personal question here. Who first shared the gospel with you? Do you remember? Who first shared the gospel with you? Would anyone like to share? Yes, Warren. Uh, when I was 32 years old, I had grown up in the Catholic faith, and there was a gentleman that I met. Uh, he was an administrator, I think he still is, administrative pastor at CFC. I can say his name, his name's Mike B. You check if he's there. <laughs>
Thank you, Warren. So Warren said the holy place of Long John Silver's was the place <laughs> that he first... Right. And that goes back to in those who are listening on the, the audio that might listen. Warren was saying that his first encounter with the gospel was through a man from CFC, Mike, who is an administrator there in some form or other, and uh, he heard the gospel, even though he knew the Warren was from a Roman Catholic background. He still did not know the true gospel. So it's important that we keep in mind who we're talking to when we're talking to them. We don't change our message just because of who it is that we're talking to. And how is the gospel shared? Purely. It's the free gift of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did they twist your arm, Warren? Yeah, did he twist your arm? Not physically, yeah. But you felt it, right, when the gospel message is preached. Well, we shouldn't physically twist anyone's arm. God is the one sovereign in salvation, as he is sovereign in all things. And don't think that your witness of sharing the gospel with someone will necessarily bring them into the sheepfold. It is God's work. It is the Spirit's conviction. And that is the beauty of the universal church with a diversity of gifts. And this goes back to what Warren was saying. This was a period of time. And in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9, it says, he says, what is then Apollos, which was one who proclaimed early in the church history? And what is Paul? He says, servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. They're all working towards the same goal. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So hopefully this morning as we have discussed these things, uh, you have been reignited with the uh, need, maybe you have that coworker or a family member who has been on your heart why are they on your heart? It's probably to speak truth to them, to share the gospel with them. And it's awkward, right? It's a little awkward. 
well, I would rather be socially awkward for 10 minutes than see a family member in hell for eternity. Because those who do not believe, Christ says, are condemned already. So it is very important that we actually walk that which we believe. Do we have any questions this morning? Mm -hmm. So Rick said, if you know that someone has heard the gospel, but they're not yet a believer based on fruit or maybe by their own admission, you know, what can you do? And as we talked about before, being God's work, and it's a spiritual matter, prayer is the number one priority. And praying for others, you know, prayers, the world likes to say, well, you're not supposed to just pray about it, you're supposed to do something about it, Right? we got all these prayer people out here, but they're not doing anything. Well, we are commanded to pray because even when we do go out and tell people about Christ, it's the Spirit's work. It's a spiritual matter. So we should be praying for those people, Rick, number one. And then also just continue to witness and um, ask questions. Questions are some of the only things that that have the key that fits inside the mind and unlocks those hidden passages that no one else walks into those, those places. So questioning is a good, a good place to start, too. Just a simple question goes a long way. All right, well, we are out of time this morning. Thank you for your attention. And let us thank the Lord for our time this morning and his blessing on our uh, worship hour. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for... You're blessing us with your truth, and we thank you, Lord, for calling us out of this world of sin, those who know Christ and are walking, abiding in him. Lord, we pray for these people that are on our hearts and minds even now. You know who they are, and you know who you will save, and we pray that you would make us instrumental vessels in carrying that gospel message the pure message of Christ to people, uh, because that is what you have commanded us to do. And we pray, Lord, now as we worship together, that you would be exalted and that we would, uh, with our attention and reverence, um, worship you purely. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.